I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a really beautiful episode. My guest for today is artist Megan Morris. And we talk about everything from how she took her energy that she was using in her eating disorder and turned it towards her beautiful artwork and how being in community and also being with self was a necessary part of her recovery process and motherhood. There's so many beautiful things. We're just going to jump right in. Here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I'm really excited to be sitting here today with artist Megan Morris. Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really excited about this conversation. So Megan, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and then we'll get into more of the interview? Sure. Uh, My name is Megan and I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I am a ceramic artist and mother of two toddlers, a three-year-old and a one and a half-year-old. And I am in recovery from eating disordered behaviors. So happy to be here. There's so many places that that I want to go with this conversation. Where I want to start is let's talk about for you the relationship between art and your recovery and how 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 by the way you you took the energy that you were using from your eating disorder and put it into your art, which is what I say to clients all the time. If we can take this energy and place it somewhere else, it's unbelievable what will come from it. So can you share a little bit about that? Sure. I think that um, my art practice has always been sort of a safe haven from anxiety or the sort of aspects of my life that led to my eating disorder. And it really, I really fell in love with it in high school. And I feel like throughout the course of my recovery, it's been a place that I can go where I feel like I don't, my identity shifts. And so I'm no longer identified with you know, whatever I was thinking about in my brain that had to do with my eating disorder, I'm just in the process of making something. And that has been really like a lifeline for me. And at other times, you know, to be honest, um, I haven't been able to get there. And it's sort of been like a red flag. Like if I am not in the studio, that usually means that, you know, I'm 
I need to look at my recovery and I need to reach out to my community because I may be isolating more. So it's sort of like in looking at my studio practice, I can kind of gauge a little bit of where I'm at mentally, if that makes any sense. That makes a lot of sense. And also it's, this is where it takes work and accountability to be in the recovery process or to be recovered, which is you cannot, I'm I'm almost going to use the term, get lazy. You need to pay attention. Oh, wait a minute. I'm not in the studio. That means I'm starting to slide back a little bit. That means I'm starting to isolate a little bit. Like that's why being recovered takes energy and, and activity, shall we say, brain activity. And that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that just that level of self-awareness has been really huge. And to be able to step outside of being super identified with my thoughts and to say like, okay, I'm observing myself thinking this way. Okay, what do I need to do about that? Um, And yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes I will get sad. I'll think like, and I hear this from a lot of people in the recovery community, I wasted so much time, right? Like I could have gotten to X, Y, Z place with my art practice if I hadn't have been so, um, you know, with one hand tied behind my back for so, for so long. And I will also say at this point that I don't consider myself, I feel like the word recovered is really uh, personal and I would say I'm still in process and that, but that I'm okay with that. It doesn't feel like I'm down in the depths of despair. I want to read something that you wrote in your paperwork that I highlighted because it was beautiful. And you said, I'm not there yet, but while that used to dishearten me, I now feel a sense of peace with the process. And that peace is in large part what I feel will ultimately hopefully propel me to being recovered. It is not that I am complacent, but rather that I can love the parts of myself that are struggling and not punish myself further for still being in process of continuing to unlearn coping strategies adopted out of a vulnerable desperation. Wow. Like that is beautiful. That is that is so beautiful, Megan. What are, I feel like that's what you were trying to just say. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's true. I will say that that connects with the work that I make in the studio. So I do um, throw functional vases, but I do a lot of abstract organic sculpture. And most of what I'm taking inspiration from is moments of transition in the botanical world. And so moments of explicit being in process, because I really find a lot of beauty in that, like a bud just opening or um, something like that. And so to find reverence for that in the natural world and then connect with it in my art practice and then to be able to feel like I am a part of that myself in my process with recovery, you know, learning how to heal and not needing to be at any kind of finish line and really kind of letting go of the narrative of there being a finish line, because I don't think that doesn't work for me. Yeah. And I also want to go back to what we were talking about earlier. It is an incredible amount of awareness to know what, to be able to say, 
I'm moving away from my value system. My value system, and I, I don't mean to speak for you, Megan, but you're saying my value system lies in the beauty of art, flowers, plants, nature. And when I lose sight of that, I'm going back into my eating disorder. So again, this is what I say to clients all the time. Is your eating disorder getting you closer to what you value in life or is it taking you farther away? And and that's that's what you're talking about. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. No, I, I love that. Um, and I think that that's a way, a really helpful way to frame it and get you out of the mindset of it being about... Um, something black and white and really looking more at like your motivations. Um, and I think about that now too, with, in terms of making decisions about food or exercise or various other things and thinking about, you know, where, where the motivation for this decision is coming from and is it going to lead me more towards feeling whole and more towards, I mean, someone once defined recovery for me, I think it's actually like a dictionary dis- definition, but it felt really spiritual of, of something like a, a returning to an original state. And I practice a, a fair amount of yoga and just sort of thinking about that as like coming back to your, your true self, your capital S self. And I think it's the same thing in a lot of ways as what you're talking about of, you know, is this decision leading me towards, towards that? Or is it taking me, am I putting on more layers of self-deception and that sort of thing? Yeah. That's the key right there, the more layers. So when you say going back to original self with capital S, we're talking about the self prior to being bombarded with, you know, emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, bombarded by the media, bombarded by pressures. That's the self we want people to go back to. I've often said to, you know, I've had you know, loved ones say, I can't wait for my son, daughter, partner, whatever, sister, brother to come out of treatment and go, go back to where they were before. And I say, no, 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 no. That's actually not what we want. We want them to go farther back. I want them to go back before they had to learn to navigate through the world, feeling like they had to do it through under the cloak of an eating disorder or silencing their voice or not being true to their values. We need to go even farther than that. And that's what you're talking about with true self, capital S. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You also wrote something and and I'm curious, I think it was very interesting. and, And I'm wondering what kind of conversations you have been met with Because one of the things you said is, I'm interested in intelligent, compassionate, nuanced, inclusive, complicated, heart-centered conversations around the incredible amount of unlearning it takes to recover. Have you been met with the opposite, which is closed-minded, judgment, rigidity, non-compassion, things like that? Yeah. And I don't think it's a malicious thing. I think that there's a lot of misinformation and um, stereotypes out there about what it means to have an eating disorder, who has eating disorders, what recovery looks like. Um, And so I've also feel like there's a certain amount of, um, I don't want to say dumbing down, but a, a, a little bit of 
what goes on and what composes an eating disorder. And I think um, it's really important to talk about the, yeah, the nuances and the complications. The, the way that I was introduced to your podcast, my brother's a musician in Portland and he's a trans man and he sent me the interview you did with Asher. Um, and I just was sort of blown away. And so I think a lot about different communities impact by eat, impacted by eating disorders and the various forms that the disease can take and just feel like it's not something that I talk about a lot publicly. When I find something, like when I find a podcast or a book that I feel like is talking about it in a way that I feel like I connect with, I kind of hone in on it because I think it supports my recovery. I do think there's a lot of misconceptions about eating disorders. I think there's a lot of stereotypes, just like you said. And and I one of the things I I did want to accomplish with this podcast was to sort of you know, blow the walls off and say, there's so much more. This is, there's many more eating disorders. Eating disorders come in every size, every gender. It is just, there's so much more to it. And, you know, when I started graduate school 20 years ago, the typical case example was always the single white female sophomore in college with anorexia nervosa. That was the case we always worked on. And so gratefully, it has come very far and has, thank God, expanded. And I also want to say, Megan, it has so much farther to go. It is, um, it, it, it's, it's pretty upsetting how much farther we still need to go with inclusivity and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, absolutely. You also talked about the fact that for you, Part of what helped you through the recovery process is a combination of reaching out to community and also going inward and finding self. Can you speak a little bit to that process? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, for many people, myself included, in my eating disorder was something that was isolating. And so to um, talk about it with other people kind of challenged that, um, and was a healing thing. And more so I would say in group context. So, you know, I had seen a therapist individually and I I think that's super helpful. Um, but it was really helpful for me to be around other people talking about their own experience and finding community in that way. But the flip side of that for me is that that could also, I I wouldn't say become a crutch, but almost a distraction. I might, you know, not really do the internal work if I just relied on that. And at the end of the day, it's you making the decision, a a recovery focused decision or not. And it's you, it's, it's your internal voice that's talking to yourself. And is that voice tone one of love and compassion or are you shaming yourself into because i think that even if even if i was even in times where my recovery was strong on paper if internally i was still you know at war with myself then it really you know i, I had no peace and so i think that that's where the internal work becomes really important 
Well, that also feels like the hallmark of an eating disorder, showing to the world that everything is okay when inside there is chaos and destruction and distress and despair. And so that's that's the hallmark. Or at least I want to say from my experience and most of the clients that I've worked with. Right. The other thing about that is learning how, and, and again, I'll, I'll speak from my own experience, learning how to balance being in community and being alone and not feeling lonely. So for me, when I was alone, I felt very lonely. I started judging myself. What's wrong with me? What? And, but the, but the interesting part of it was even when I was in community, I felt lonely. So it was connecting again to that part of self that could be present in community and then sort of bathe in my alone time, if that's, you know, to, to make it, you know, a little flowery, but like to bathe in it and say, this is my time. And this is, this is a good thing. I don't know if you have anything to say to that. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that I used to feel really anxious when I had too much alone time, because it was like too much time in my head. And I would feel like I needed to be busy all the time, or that was part of what would drive either restricting or exercise, various other things. I will would also connect that with um, a balance between community and solitude in the sense that it might precipitate like oversharing, you know, oh, I'm alone. I need to reach out. Like I need to, I need to like share with someone how I'm doing. I, it, and that's not a bad impulse. I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm just saying that for me, taking a step back and saying, actually, I have the internal resources to be with this feeling. And um, I'm going to enjoy having the mental space, like you said, to sit with this. That was really when things started to shift for me. Mm-hmm. And then to be able to know, okay, maybe in this moment, I've sat with this for such and such amount of time, but actually there's this one person that I'm going to mindfully reach out to in a specific way and share something. Yeah. Do you mind, I, I kind of want to make a hard turn and, and I apologize, but it's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's in me. And I'm like, Oh, I got to ask about this. Let's, I want to turn to the talk about motherhood. Mm-hmm. You have two toddlers. I believe you said three and one and a half. What has motherhood been like for you throughout this process? Yeah. I mean, going back to my pregnancy, my first pregnancy, I mean, I remember thinking like, this is going to change everything. I can no longer, um, and I was, you know, working on my recovery, but like I said, I feel like I've, I'm still, I'm a work in progress. Right. And so I was scared. I was like, I don't, I don't think I know how to, how to do this. My body's going to get bigger. My body's going to change. And it was really strange. It sort of felt like a really cathartic experience. I think that I was sort of blown away by what my body was capable of. And it felt easier to me to um, take care of myself, knowing that I was carrying this other person. And then I gave birth with a midwife. Um, I had a natural birth. And that also was sort of life-changing in terms of the way that I think about what my body is capable of. I mean, it was, 
I don't, there's no way to describe it, but the, you know, getting through that, um, and the second, the, the birth of my second child with another midwife as well. Like, it's just when I feel like I want to tear myself down for what my body isn't or won't be, um, I think about those things. Um, and then I will say that being a mom, right. Like what I was talking about before when I would used to have now I'm like, I love alone time because I never get it. But I also, you know, I'm somebody who is a thinks a lot, super sensitive. And just, you know, if you give me a, a minute alone, I'll spin out. And so being with kids, you, you know, you can't really do that. They force you to be really present. And that has been really healing for me, too. I just feel like being around them, even when it's really frustrating, I'm, I'm right. I'm right there. And that's been really helpful. It's also been really hard. And it's also one of the sorts of things that I feel like requires community. And that's been hard to find, especially with the pandemic, but it really shouldn't exist in isolation. <laughs> like just finding other people to communicate with about your struggles as a mom, to communicate with your struggles about your eating disorder is, is super, super important. And then I think one last thing I'll say is just, I mean, I have two boys so part of me was like, well, you know, I think people, it is a stereotype The you know, obviously eating disorders affect everyone, but I just, you know, I really want to teach them to love their bodies and to appreciate food. And so that's also been motivating for me. You know, I, I want to point out, and I hope everyone hears me when I say, I'm not saying this from a place of judgment for people that are suffering with their eating disorder when they have children. What I want to point out, Megan, is that you chose to become present around your children. And that is not easy. And again, there is no judgment. Everybody is where they're supposed to be at this moment in time. But some people cannot find that yet. They're still so in their eating disorder thoughts or their behaviors that they cannot be present with their children. And the reason why I want to point that out is because I don't want you to think like, oh, well, I, it's, it's an automatic. It's actually, this is your recovered self that is choosing to be present, which is not always the easiest thing to do. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I think about sometimes what it would be like if I were, you know, still uh, in my behaviors and just just physically what how draining that is like I just don't think I'd be able to take care of them um in the way that I want to um to be able to show up mentally and physically um for them and that's not to say that there are times where it still feels really hard um and I'm lucky enough to have a partner who's really supportive it definitely feels like a motivating factor for me I also don't want to hide it from them. I mean, I think at a certain point I will talk to them about my history and it doesn't need to be something that we never talk about either. What do you, and this is probably the million dollar question, but what are the steps that you feel like you're going to take to raise children, to raise two little souls, whether they're, you know, no matter what their gender identity is, to, to raise them to have acceptance of their body, to not be critical of ju or judgmental of their body or others? How do you, 
Have you thought about how to do that? And if you have, can we bottle that up <laughs> and sell it? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think about it a lot. Um, and I won't say I have a silver bullet. I think that one thing I think about is leading by example. Um, I think that growing up, at least for me, I was never told by my caregivers anything other than, you know, loving affirmations, but I observed, particularly my mother, engage in diet culture. Whether or not she was explicit about it, I was sensitive enough to pick up how she felt about herself. That goes back generations. And so I'm just really interested in breaking that lineage and sort of having them see me take care of myself in different ways, not engage in diet culture, actively talk about why that is. You know, as they get older, yeah, just having a different sort of appreciation for food. I'm somebody who worked on a farm for a long time. My family's vegetarian um, and just sort of introducing food as nourishment, food as healing. I think that the way that I grew up, sometimes it felt things were really busy. It was kind of an afterthought. And, you know, I think also just trying to really listen to them and pick up on any cues that, you know, if there if there was ever any implication that they were feeling one way or another about their bodies to really show up for that um, and give it a lot of time and space. Um, but mostly what I think about is the leading by example part, you know, just trying to be really mindful of how I talk to myself, how I talk to my husband, how I'm talking on the phone, just because they pick up on everything, you know. I, I remember I was interviewing someone and forgive me, I can't remember who it was, but this person said they were so shocked when they went over to a friend's house and saw their friend's mother eating cookies because they're like, moms don't eat cookies because that's the message that her mom gave her. It was like, oh, no, 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 moms don't eat cookies. <laughs> it is powerful the what little little minds can absorb and internalize and really feel our truths like and, and she really believed this this guest really believed it when she went over to her friend's house and was like wow I've, I've never moms don't eat cookies and so there is definitely a responsibility that that is there how do you feel like your artwork going back to that do you channel some of the energies that you would have typically put into eating disorder behaviors or thoughts and do you do you channel them into your your artwork and your pottery and stuff like that I think so I try to bring my full self to my art practice in a way in sort of the opposite way that the eating disorder like took away my full self and so it feels really healing from that perspective um, and, you know, the amount of mental energy it takes to engage in an eating disorder is sort of monumental. So to channel that into something else has always been the goal. I mean, I think the ratio isn't like one for one. Um, and so it, it's, it's messy. And I think that's, that's okay too. There are times I'll be in the studio and it's not like every time I step in there, I never have a thought, uh, you know, a body shaming thought or a a thought about food that isn't totally healthy, but it's still me choosing to access my full self or at least go in that direction. And one of my favorite quotes 
is Art as the Highest Form of Hope by Gerhard Richter, who's an abstract painter. Um, and I think about that a lot in my practice because that's what it feels like for me. Even if it's not, even if I'm still struggling, me showing up there is me saying implicitly that I have hope, that I'm not going to stay stuck, that I'm going to take a step you know, out into the unknown put myself out there, be vulnerable, make something, show my art to the world, what have you. Um, and that feels like a type of bravery that the eating disorder doesn't want me to have. And so to say, I'm going to go there, even if it's uncomfortable or I'm, my heart's not totally in it, I think every time I do it is like strengthening. Have you ever been able to look back on your artwork and notice there were times like, could you ever look back and say, I can tell by what I was producing at that time that I was struggling, that I wasn't fully there, that I wasn't my full capital S self? Or is that something that I just made up? <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I think that I might be able to tell more if my work was more representational of, uh, you know, a painting or something. But I think that the lapse in time, like if there's a lapse in my production, if I haven't um, made that a priority, if I haven't made studio space a priority, or um, then that usually points to that I'm making more space for being involved in, in, the, in the disease. Yeah. What do you feel for you was the most difficult thing to overcome? Or are you still working on that? I'm definitely still working. I think that when I think about thinking back to, like you were saying, go back, go back, go back, you know, before I was around 13, when I kind of started dipping my toe into, into things, um, you know, it really does feel like a before and after thing. And so I think the hardest thing has been really like the internal state part, being able to get back to a place where you know, I value myself the way that I did. There's a certain amount of innocence there before you're deciding to do something that you know rationally is going to harm you. Um, like something, something in me, you know, I had a part kind of break away at that point. And so going, trying to get back and um, heal that, I think has been the hardest part. Um, certainly behavioral change, um, cognitive change is all still really, really difficult. But I think for me at this point, I think a lot about, um, about that little girl and just like, you know, really wanting to be able to get back to that place, um, in a different way, right? Like I've had all this life experience. I don't want to go back in time. I just, yeah, to be able to have that sense of worthiness that isn't dependent upon anything else. Well, not only a sense of worthiness, but a sense of like curiosity and excitement and adventure mm -hmm. and shyness and giddiness, like all these things that we had, you know, and, and I'm not saying that every child grows up to be somebody with, you know, mental health issues or distress or whatnot, but, you know, we are not the same as when we were born. And so, and we're not supposed to be, but to be able to go back to that time before we censored ourselves would, would really be, I, I have a client right now 
who from a very, very young age was told you are too much, too loud, too excitable, too big, too this. And since she was a little girl, she's been trying to push all of that down. But guess what, Megan? She's always going to have this big, boisterous, incredible energy and somewhat chaotic style. And we can't take that out of somebody completely. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the goal is to help you to navigate so you can still be your true self and navigate through the world. But to say to somebody, you're too much. Yeah. I mean, I think I was told similar things in the opposite direction. You're too sensitive. Um, you know, you're too much in this other direction. You're, you're too emotional. Your feelings are too big. Um, you're too sensitive. That's also something I feel like I can harness in the studio is to use my sensitivity as a gift and my sense of self as a gift. I think that's part of what the practice gives me. I I think I can access a little bit that part of myself that is less self-conscious. But yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to to take take on those messages. And I think for a long time, I thought it was my responsibility to fit myself into some other way of being that was more palatable. Well, there's there's talk that there's a difference between fitting in and belonging. And when we try to fit in, we typically depart from our soul self. And But when we feel like we belong, we're showing up our whole self and it clicks. So that that feels like one of the differences or a big difference. Was there anything in particular that was poignant? in your recovery process that had you turn towards recovery? It's different for everybody. Some people say, I can remember the exact day. And some people (laughs) say, it was this event, this event, this event. How how much time do we have for me to talk about each individual event? So what was it like for you? Uh, I mean, I think it's been so long. It's been such a sort of winding road that there are multiple moments that I can think of. But I did do a, a stay in a residential facility in 2015. And I wouldn't say that that's what changed. I would say that the moments leading up to that in terms of reaching a place where I just, I sort of was like, I can't, I I can't, I I can't, I, I have to stop. Like I have to sort of give myself over to this other place. And that was, that was really hard. Um, and ultimately I, Um, have mixed feelings about my experience, but I think it was the beginning of me starting to really choose myself in a different way. And since then I've done, you know, various other work, different types of modalities of, of healing. But I think having a moment of clarity of like not wanting to have my life look the way that it did. And I will, I would also say, you know, certainly since having a family that has shifted, it has shifted things pretty, pretty dramatically for me. Yeah. Is there anything you want to share about the mixed emotions about going into treatment? And please, Megan, do not feel that this is, you know, this is not you reading your diary (laughs) on a podcast. So I I honor people's, you know, privacy and their boundaries. But is there anything that you wanted to share about that? Because treatment is complicated. Yeah, it is. I got a lot out of the relationships that I formed with the other clients. And I think that unfortunately, some of what the sort of program looked like 
didn't um, totally align with with how I felt I wanted to look at how I wanted to look at my recovery. Um, but at the same time, you know, and I hear a lot of people who are sort of in in a crisis point and say, well, I don't want to go because I I don't because it, it's scary and it's not perfect. It's a system. It's a program. And you have to understand that um, it's not going to be everything that you want. Um, and that's kind of part of the point. And it's not forever. Um, and it doesn't mean that you lose yourself. But it's like a specific amount of time to really look at something. By the way, I've, I've worked in all levels of care. Um, treatment is no, it's not everything we want it to be. Sometimes, though, it is a lifeline and it is so necessary. I mean, everything is mixed. I look at myself because treatment programs weren't available when I had my eating disorder 30 years ago and wonder, would I have gotten through my recovery process sooner had I gone to treatment? Would I have stayed in my eating disorder longer if I had gone to treatment? There's no right or wrong way. And the, the, hopefully the mission of each treatment center is to have a philosophy, which is a structure that, that guides what they do with the ability to add individual parts for each client. It doesn't always happen that way. But I also agree with you, though. It's not forever. Um, it's for a moment in time. And sometimes we have to accept the fact that there are good things to take from it. And that's what you're going to focus on and move through the rest of it. And I, I don't know if that made sense. Did I just ramble that or? No, no, not at all. That made a lot of sense. You know, I think that when I imagine what life would have continued to look like for me, if I hadn't have done it, you know, I don't, you're right. I don't know. Um, but I do think that it kickstarted something, um, and, and that, and that that was really important. Mm -hmm. Megan, it, it has really been such a pleasure talking to you. We're going to have to start winding down. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to share with listeners or anything that you just wanted to talk about before we end the podcast? I think this was really a rich conversation. I really appreciate it. I think one thing that I uh, was talking about recently or was asked about was what would you say to someone, you know, who doesn't want to start the process of recovery because they, you know, they're, they're too far gone or they're like, you know, I, I can't do that because I'm, I'm just like, so not well or whatever. Uh, I don't remember how they said it, but I just, I feel like I would want to say that, you know, like it's okay to be a complete mess and still reach out. It's okay to like, not even really have your total heart in it, you know, and still, if there's a small part of you has the impulse to try to heal. It's okay. If it's just that part, you don't have to like believe it with your full, with your full self yet to, to make it, make a little step. In fact, it's the only way to start the process because if people were fully ready and like, come on, let's just get rid of this. There wouldn't be eating disorders or there wouldn't be need for treatment centers or there wouldn't be clinicians. I mean, it is, it is a push-pull internal battle with self that if you're waiting to be 100% ready, then it's not going to happen. 
I wasn't a hundred percent ready. I don't, I, I just, there were times where I was just sort of going along for the ride. And, and then there were times when I was in a clearer headspace and I was really present and you can't wait for that. So I agree. I agree with what you were saying. So Megan, again, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. It has. Thank you so much. It's an honor. It has been lovely. It has been wonderful. So All right, everyone, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.